morning, church. Uh, please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord. We invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. Today's passage comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. It says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of all the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself, itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. that hopefully that works a little bit better good morning everybody my name is Pat if you're in Kingdom Kids you know where to go Justin over here is the grades two through five K through one to my left your right over here is uh, preschool excellent good to have you here this morning thanks for joining us and if I haven't had a chance to meet you it's probably because um, I'm here one weekend and gone the next that's the nature of the work that I do so if you want to learn more I'd be happy to talk with you and tell you a little bit more about it, but I am really glad to be with you today. Let's uh, pray, and we'll dig into what we're looking at this morning. Our Lord Jesus, it was all those years ago today that you began the most momentous week in all of history by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, conducting a week of amazing ministry in Jerusalem, and capping that week with a more amazing victory on the cross. It was a victory that looked like defeat, but one week from today, you rose again and you changed everything. You changed everything. You, you established your kingdom, you initiated your church, and the fact that we're sitting here this morning is proof positive that you are still reigning and ruling and running freely in this world gone wild. So help us to reorient ourselves to that good news this morning. I pray that you would give us grace um, to hear. I ask that you would give me grace to speak, and I 
pray that we would be blessed for having gathered together and spent time thinking and talking about you. We come to the Father in your name, asking these things. Amen. All right, well, um, on Friday morning, I finally had the uh, introduction to my uh, presentation here this morning. I had lunch, or some, well, not lunch, breakfast with um, some friends on, from King's Church here, a group of guys we met down at Waffle House, and uh, somehow we started talking about church in Lakeland. And it was kind of an interesting conversation. I mean, somebody said that Lakeland is one of the highest church building per capita cities in the country. Turns out that's true. There are more than 117 church buildings in Lakeland proper. You maybe didn't know that, but that feels like a lot to me. And for our population, somewhere in the neighborhood just north of 100,000, that means there's one church building for every 950 people. And when you stack that up against the measurements in the rest of the country, it does indeed put us in one of the most church-buildinged populations in America, which is interesting, which, of course, led to a conversation about church for this group of four diverse different guys. One guy was here, um, just had been to a church plant up north of Lakeland that had closed its doors, and uh, here we are meeting in a church building that's been housing a church for about 100 years now, so quite a range of experiences. Uh, another person, uh, a couple of us there were involved in King's Church from the start over its four short years from birth to growth, and uh, before that belonged to other churches in other places. In fact, all of us have been involved in local churches going back years, and in my case, at least decades, um, in, in our lives. And for all of us at breakfast, the experience had been kind of a mix of, you know, good, okay, and uh, not so good. And what struck me about the conversation was not anything unusual about it, but the fact that my guess is if any of you had joined us that morning for breakfast, there's a high likelihood that you probably would have had about the same conversation that we had. Somehow or another, your life has woven in and out of through church probably from before you could even remember. It's a relatively rare person who comes to a place like this on a Sunday morning who has never before been to a place like this on a Sunday morning. If that's you, by the way, welcome. We're glad you're here. My experience that I've just described might seem a little obscure to you, but hang with us and let's, let's see where this thing goes. Um, it, it raises an important question, though, doesn't it? What exactly is the point of the local church? I mean, what are we supposed to be doing here? Surely it seems that the local church is supposed to be something more than just a place we plant ourselves on Sunday mornings for a season of our life until the season changes and we go someplace else, do something else, plant ourselves in another seat and kind of go through life as though we're just passing from rest stop to rest stop to rest stop. I think it's interesting in this passage that we read that if you lived in Ephesus in the time that Paul was writing this letter, well, you could never have had the experience I and my friends had at Waffle House on Friday morning because there was no church in Ephesus. Paul had planted the first one. There wasn't another church to go to at the time. And in planting the first one, he had laid out a very clear picture of what it was supposed to look like and what it was supposed to do. And so in this section of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul is kind of filling his readers in on the practical implications of what 
it means to be called by God. In other words, since the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be adopted into his family, and then by his own sovereign majesty wove all of the pieces together so that in our actual life reality, we have been adopted into his family. Since the Lord Jesus has done everything necessary to reconcile you and I to the Father and to one another as brothers and sisters, including, as we read, descending into the lower regions, dying a criminal's death in our stead, rising from the grave and ascending into the heavenly places far above all rule and authority. Since the Holy Spirit has brought us to life from death through the gospel, and has, begun the, the seal of, has become the seal of our inheritance in Christ so that right now we are heavenly royalty, even though we may be languishing as Paul was as Roman prisoners. Since this is the scope of the kingdom into which you have been welcomed and exalted, in Paul's logic, it only makes sense then that you all, us all, Start living up into that. And so in the first verse of this chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul does exactly that. He urges the Ephesians to walk worthy of the calling to which they had been called. And if you weren't here a couple of Sundays ago when Ian spoke on this particular passage, you need to go get the podcast, you need to pull it up, and you need to listen to it because he did a fabulous job of unpacking that passage and what it means and what it carries by way of implication for us. And it's important to understand that all I'm doing is continuing that thought. That little word, but, at the start of the passage we read today is actually a continuing conjunction, okay? It's not as though Paul is shifting his idea to something else. We've talked about this. Now let's talk about this. It is rather... I've talked about this, and now I'm going to build upon it and expand upon it. So, you know, having to break these passages into chunks that fit a Sunday morning makes it a little bit difficult to keep that thought stream going, but that's really the thought stream. He said his thought flow starts with this appeal based on everything that God has done for us. Listen, y'all, walk worthy. He provides a quick listing of the virtues necessary to do so. Humility, patience, gentleness, forbearance, a unified mindset. He bases it on a solid scriptural foundation. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And then he says, and moreover, to help you walk worthy, Jesus has provided grace and resources for helping us to walk worthy worthy in the context of our calling, which brings me back to my Friday morning breakfast conversation about church and churches. How does the local church become a place like that? A place where Jesus' disciples are actively engaged in the business of growing into a mature, functioning local church that's helping people in it to walk worthy of their calling. And so that's kind of our main point this morning. That's what we're going to spend some time talking about. A local church grows into a mature, functioning reality as each of us speaks the truth to one another. And as I think my way through this passage, I see uh, at least four different explanations or four different facets of that that Paul points out. He says, first of all, what does that look like? What does a mature, functioning local church look like? 
And then where do the resources come from to make that church become that? And whose responsibility is it, anyhow, to engage those resources and make that local church become a mature, functioning church? And then how do we do it? So those are the four things we want to quickly walk through. And I'll tell you honestly, um, I'm really nervous that I'm going to go way too long. So there's just a ton to say, and I'm going to try to say it fast. Hopefully you can listen fast, and hopefully I'll be able to be concise. Um, because we could park here for a long time. And I, I think the good news is, uh, I can honestly say from an elder's perspective, we have kind of parked here for a long time. And so if you're here at the King's Church and, you know, you're kind of doing church with us these days, this is probably going to sound familiar because this is how we breathe and think at the uh, elder level at the King's Church. So, so let's dive in. First question, what does a mature, functioning church look like? Well, it looks like a healthy, active, adult human being. This is the picture Paul is describing. That's the metaphor of the body that he picks up to, descri to describe the church. Now think about this for a second. What is a healthy, active, adult human body? Well, it, it's somebody who can be fully engaged with what they were made to do without giving a thought themselves. In other words, you can throw a ball without your arm hurting. You can jump without having to think about it. You can just imagine what needs to be done in a particular situation and you can make your body do it. Almost without effort, almost without thought. Your body just does what it was made to do. And the picture is compelling. I mean, we actually pay big money to watch people do this. We'll go to a stadium and we'll watch 22 guys on a football field do this. We'll go to a performance and we'll watch a troop of artists stand on a stage and do this. We'll go to a stadium and watch 10 guys on a basketball court or 10 girls on a basketball court do this. I mean, we'll pay big money to watch people do healthy, active things without even thinking about themselves. They're just doing it. It's an amazing thing to see, and it's very compelling, which is what Paul picks up. And he's saying in a similar way, a mature, functional church is a community of Jesus' disciples who can fully engage in the work of ministry to which Jesus is calling them with a grace and an efficiency and a oneness of heart and mind that keeps them from tripping over themselves or getting in each other's way. In the same way that watching athletes and artists perform is appealing to us, man, being a part of a church like that, a church that looks like that, that's attractive, that's compelling. And it's evident that Jesus and the apostles wanted the Ephesian church to become that way. So it's no surprise then that if this is what Jesus wants when he's talking about building his church, then we should expect Jesus to be resourcing that, which is exactly what Paul says. So he says in the passage that we just read, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ. And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. The resources necessary for becoming that kind of church have been given to us by Christ under two categories. Uh, grace is the first one, and then I made up a word for us this morning. Gospelizers, okay? 
and a gospelizer is what we're talking about in that little set of four functions. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers, okay? Through the grace that Jesus has given us and through the gospelizers that Jesus provides to every church, every local church has the resources it needs to become a mature, functioning body of Christ. Well, let's just talk about that for a second. What do we mean by grace? Well, the grace here is the embarrassment of riches that Jesus gives to a local church through the skills and capacities inherent in the believers who are its members. Now, grace is a, is a big word. It covers a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. But this context is grace has been given to each of us, okay? And that grace is expressed in the skills and capacities that are given to us either by birth or by some special endowment through the Holy Spirit. It is the resource by which Jesus intends to build the church. And what's interesting here is that Paul goes into no detail on what those particular skills and capacities might be. Now, a lot of... No, I'm not going to go there. I've got to keep it short. You can read about the different kinds of skills and capacities that Paul saw evident in the church in other books that he writes. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Colossians. Peter talks about it as well in his letters. You can read about some of the different skills and capacities. But that doesn't seem to be Paul's point here. Paul's point here does not seem to be so much spelling out the diversity of gifts that are available, but rather the fact that you and me have been endowed with grace from Jesus Christ to help the church grow into a mature and functioning reality. And Paul seemed to want every Ephesian who was reading the letter to recognize that's the reality with you. You have been given grace. And he goes into some detail. He, he cites um, Psalm chapter 68, verse 18. And he says, this is, this is the thing that's been uh, prophesied, predicted, forecast for centuries. When he talks about that, he led captivity captive. I mean, it's, a, it's this beautiful picture of a conquering king who has dominated a region, and now he's holding hostage the citizens of that region. In a normal setting, that's not a happy circumstance, okay? The citizens of that region cease to be citizens of that region. They are now slaves and victims and property of the conquering king. And they can anticipate a life of hardship, difficulty, and misery when they get back to wherever this king is going to take them. But Jesus sets that whole thing on its head. This is not the kind of grace that you would imagine in a scenario like that. Rather, it's a beautiful kind of grace where not only has Jesus come into our lives and rescued us, claiming us back from where we had been, but he gives us gifts so as to make us citizens, sons and daughters. So this is kind of grace on top of grace. And add to that, you bring with you all the resources that you have as God's gift in the course of your life. And the point is this, we need those. We need every one of those. If we, as a local church, if Ephesus, as a local church, 
was going to be a healthy, maturing body of Christ, they needed the skills and capacities, the grace that had been given to them by the descended and ascended Lord through the skills and capacities of each individual member. But it's not just that. It's not just as though, well, okay, how do we organize all of that? He also gave this cohort of gifted individuals that I call gospelizers in this passage. They are the apostles and the prophets. Now, twice already in this letter, Paul has talked about the apostles and the prophets, okay? They are the foundation upon which everything is built in the church. They are the ones to whom the mystery of the gospel has been revealed, chapter 2, chapter 3. And here, they are the ones who establish everything that goes on in the shadow of, on the foundation of the gospel. Their job is to make sure that everything aligns with the gospel. The evangelists are those who are out gospelizing. The evangel an evangelist is just somebody who evangelizes. An evangelist is just gospel, okay? Just the same word picture. We use different words, but it's the same, the same word. The people who take the gospel to people and frontiers that have never had it. That's the evangelist. And then there's the pastors and teachers, the ones who remind and exhort and encourage in the gospel. Everything that they do is focused on the gospel. And here's the thing. In a functioning, healthy, maturing church, you have a group of individuals like this who are making sure that everything stays focused on Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed it about the King's Church. We talk about Jesus a lot here. That's intentional. It's on purpose. Honestly, there's nothing better or other to talk about in a church but Jesus. But you'll hear us saying Jesus' name a lot in our services, in our city groups, and everything that we do. You'll hear us talking about the gospel a lot. We are absolutely convinced that the gospel is not just a thing you need before you're saved. It is a thing you need all the time. Every day of our lives, we need the gospel. It is the function of the gospelizers, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, to ensure that everything in the local church stays focused on, directed towards Jesus the Christ and the gospel. But that does not mean that the entire responsibility rests solely on their shoulders. No, that brings us to our, our third question. Who's responsible for a local church becoming this kind of mature, functioning reality? Well, it should be evident by this point from what Paul is saying that the responsibility to become a mature, functioning local church rests with each of us. We are the resources that Jesus has made available. We are the saints who both equip and need to be equipped for the work of ministry so that we can build up the body of Christ, which in this usage is obviously the local church in Ephesus. In our usage, it's us. We are responsible for our church's health and maturity based on the measure of the gift of Christ. We'd have different functions but we're all responsible for the same outcome, is what Paul is saying here. And as such, our responsibility is, is twofold. 
we are to arrive at mature adulthood in Christ so that we can stop being like immature children, okay? The mature adulthood in Christ consists of really both a mental and a behavioral component, okay? On the one hand, it involves this adult-level conviction about Jesus as the Son of God, along with kind of the, the requisite apologetic skill to defend that conviction. Maturity at this mental level means you understand the gospel, you know who Jesus is, and you're able to give an answer for it. You're able to defend it. This is what the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God implies. And again, remember, that's not just me or Ian or Andrew or a select few people. That's everybody here. Everybody here is called to that kind of maturity. And it's not just mental, it's also behavioral. It, it involves adult-level conduct aligned with that of Jesus himself. It's the conduct that measures up to both the quality and compassion demonstrated by Jesus. Just read through the Gospels. And the way that you see him interacting with others is how we are called to interact with other, others. It's that adult-level conduct that's aligned with the gospel. And that's what's behind the phrase, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hang around mature adults like this, I actually find it invigorating. And you can sit down and you can actually have an honest conversation with them. They don't waver in their convictions. They're not threatened by those who don't hold the same convictions as they do but they can state and defend the truths of the gospel both winsomely and confidently. And you can walk away disagreeing, but you walk away friends. I find that invigorating, helpful. Their contribution isn't rendered in some grudging obligations like, oh, here we go again. But rather, they're always finding the resource of love from which to render service to those they're with. They're like that mother who gets up at 2 o'clock in the morning to care for her child because it's her child. And that's what mothers do. I find that wonderful and beautiful. They never resort to cleverness, half-truths, propaganda in order to win an argument. Rather, they speak forthrightly, plainly, persuasively. My brothers and sisters, it's our responsibility to become mature adults in Christ, just like that. So that we can stop being immature children, which, unfortunately, is kind of what we started out at in our walk with Christ. In a couple weeks after Easter, uh, I think Ian is up next, he'll be talking about this in the next section and where we all started our, our walk with Christ. We are growing up into this mature adulthood so that we're no longer like that. And the like that also has this behavioral and mental component. I mean, behaviorally, do you read the image? It's like being tossed to and fro. That person or that type of lifestyle that's always up or down. It's always on or off. It's always here or there. It's pretty much completely unpredictable. 
unstable. It might even be for those in relationship with such a person a bit nauseating because I just don't ever know where I actually stand with that person. Mentally, it's kind of similar. It's the, the image of that gullible person who falls prey to every snippet of fake news that comes down the pike. They're victims of clever scams and are willing to accept outright lies that just happen to be positioned by truth, uh, positioned as truths. It's frustrating. They're ever learning. They're never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Now, in contrast to the mature adults that we are called to become, when I hang around with people like immature children, man, it's maddening. It's draining. It's frustrating. Here's our responsibility, brothers and sisters. All of us together, it's our responsibility to grow up into mature adulthood after the model of Christ so that we can stop being immature children and contribute to the growth in the maturity and function of the local church in which God has placed us. So if that's our responsibility, how do we get from where we are to there? How do we as individuals and consequently our church become what it is that Jesus is talking about in this passage? The answer is really simple, straightforward. We speak the truth to one another in love. Now, you'll notice on the screen that I capitalized the word truth. That's kind of on purpose because I needed to call that little phrase out. Um, the original word that Paul uses here made a lot of sense if you were an ancient Greek speaker, and it had this bigger meaning than just speaking words. He's actually, if it were to be literally translated, it would be truthing in love. But that doesn't make any sense to us because we just don't get the, the idiom. We don't get the metaphor that was apparent to the Greek. So the translation we have, speaking the truth in love, it, it's, it's a good metaphor. But what it gets to is that we're talking about something more than merely being honest with each other. Which, interestingly enough, Paul will talk about that in a couple verses. Okay, before we get out of chapter 4, he's going to talk about being honest and not lying to one another. But he's talking about something different here. He's talking about something deeper, higher in this particular section. He's also talking about something more than just good words, nice words. We should certainly be good and decent and nice in our words. But again, he'll talk about that a little bit farther down. In about verse 27, 28 of this chapter, he'll get there. Let your words be wholesome for the building up of the hearers. He's going to talk about how we speak, but here he's talking about something more. He's talking about truth with a capital T. He's talking about truthing in love. The truth Paul's been talking about this whole letter is the gospel as it's revealed in Jesus. In other words, the local church's growth into healthy maturity is directly correlated to the gospel fluency of each and every member of that local church. The gospel fluency of each and every member. And that might be a new term for you, but gospel fluency is that ability to both articulate the good news about God's salvation through Jesus compellingly in words, to be able to say what the gospel is, as well as the ability to orient our lives more and more to that truth 
So we have a very compact way of saying that here. We want to see a greater worship of Jesus Christ by declaring and displaying the gospel. That's what gospel fluency is. It is the capacity as an individual to declare and display the gospel compellingly and fluently. In order to become fluent really in anything, you honestly have to immerse yourself in it. You cannot dabble at a thing and become fluent in it. You must immerse yourself in it, whether it's a language, whether it's a sport, whether it's an occupation. If you are going to master it, you must immerse in it. And that means we have to immerse ourselves into Jesus, into a community and culture that's saturated with Jesus and the constant application of the gospel to all of life. There simply is no other way. You can't do it with a book. You can't do it with a podcast. Those things can be helpful along the way. But man, if you're going to become gospel fluent and thus help the local church to become the healthy, mature, functioning entity Jesus wants it to be, each of us have to immerse ourselves in becoming gospel fluent. I suppose there's a dozen ways that local church might try to create space where members can become more gospel fluent. I can just tell you about the way we do it here. Okay, we call them city groups. Um, city groups are our way of working out what Paul is teaching in this particular passage. Let me show you what we mean. Uh, our city group is a, a group of about 10 to 15 people who weekly meet at somebody's house, first of all, for dinner. Okay, so, so track with me here. That engages the skills and capacities of the people in that group, okay? Somebody has to coordinate the dinner. Somebody has to host at the location. Somebody has to help take care of other details. Guess what? Jesus has given you grace to do those things. I know they feel ordinary. I know they feel mundane. In this context, they are the grace that Jesus has given to you to help you participate in the building up of the body. And for us, the city group is the place where, okay, plug in and get engaged right there at the level of your skills and capacities. When we arrive at this place for dinner, we usually share a meal together. Typically takes 30, 45 minutes, sometime an hour, depending on the conversation. And that's intentional. This allows time for conversations to develop. And conversations are really critical. The thing with conversations is they can be really awkward face-to-face. -face. I mean, if you're firing off a text to somebody, posting something on social media, piece of cake. But if you actually have to look at somebody else's eyeballs and say something to them and listen to them say something back to you and then keep doing that for any length of time, you start sweating. Man, whew, look at the time. It's hard. But here's the thing. That's okay. The only way you learn to do it is by doing it. And so we intentionally build space for that skill to develop because it's in the context of that skill developing that love blossoms. That we stop talking to one another as opponents 
or competitors or inferiors or superiors. And we start talking to one another as brothers and sisters, as family. It just takes time. It just takes eye-to-eye, face-to-face contact. And it happens beautifully over a meal. And then if you're in one of our city groups, we, we intentionally shift. We, we make an intentional turn to begin talking about some portion of Scripture that we've collectively tried to read the previous week. And we practice the skill of gospelizing one another, of trying to say, what does this passage say about how we live, about our life, about Jesus? What does it remind us of? And we just repeat week after week after week in hopes that as we speak the truth in love to one another, we might grow up into a mature, functioning local church where we actually become gospel fluent and we're helping one another to love each other better. Like I said, there may be a dozen different ways for a local church to translate what Paul is talking about into action, but here's how we do it here. So, let's wrap this thing up. If you've been called into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, then honestly, the gospel's rewritten everything about who you are. It's rewriting everything about what you're doing here, and it's definitely rewritten everything about where you're headed. The invitation from the apostle is clear. If that's your calling, walk worthy of that calling. The primary environment in which we all learn to do that is the local church. At its best, the local church organizes and behaves itself something like Paul is describing in this passage. And we're trying that here in the way that we do things, the small groups, the city groups that we run. That's exactly what we're trying to do. But you're the resources. The grace has been given to you and to me. It is incumbent upon us to pick up responsibility that Christ has given us and contribute to the growth in maturity and function. So the invitation is simple. Man, glad you're here. Join us. Get involved. This, this is a great ride. I would say of the multiple churches that I've been a part of in my XD years, um, <laughs> remember, I'm the pastor who is the senior. I'm not the pastor or senior pastor. I'm the pastor who is the senior. Um, <laughs> what's happening here at the King's Church is some of the best I've known in local church in all my years. And I'm thrilled to be here. Um, and join us. Get involved. Learn how to speak the truth to one another in love. If it's a little awkward, that's okay. Take heart. It probably will be a little awkward, but it gets better. Here's the reality. The gospel is not the first language for any of us here. But it is the forever language of everybody who's been called in the Lord. So now's the time to start learning it. And what a gift we've been given to learn it together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, 
thank you for what you've done. And we could talk about the beauty of your salvation in Christ forever. And in fact, we will. We will never tire of it, and it will become more and more glorious to us. Forgive us, Father, that it seems so difficult to us right now, so obscure, so hard, that so many lesser things compete for our attention when this one thing is ultimately all that matters. Forgive us and help us by your spirit, by your grace, by the gift that you've given us in one another to urge each other on to walk worthy of the calling to which you have called us. And we pray that you would prosper our efforts for the glory of your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.